This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. don't have an open though i didn't really think about it um we didn't do anything this weekend yeah it was kind of weird there was a point like last time we hung out where we were just talking about what we were gonna do and it came up that neither of us were doing anything and then like before i moved it would have been an opportunity to try and like plan something but Mm -hmm. in this case we both just let the moment pass without commenting yeah we both just kind of went good all right. No see you plans, later. huh? See you whenever. Enjoy. Not, weekend, not I'm not doing anything. Not this weekend. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And this week we're going to be talking about some play, Mr. Burns, a poster electric play that Andrew read. Um, By but, Anne Washburn. Ann Washburn. But yeah, yesterday was Snowtown, USA here on the East Coast, Upper East Coast. And so our first good snow of the, of the winter mm-hmm. coming in at mid-January. Uh-huh. Uh, I stayed inside almost the whole day, which was nice. Yeah, me too. Um, and then today, it's similar, except I went to the grocery store, which was kind of, you know, good. Mm-hmm. Didn't see your dumb face. Nope, that was fine. That was totally fine. I think we both. I, what did I do it. yesterday? I mostly played video games. Today, I did. Have you ever done that thing where you like open a drawer or you like walk into a room and you just see stuff everywhere and you're like, I need to immediately completely reorganize this entire room (laughs) or I'll go crazy. I did that in like three different rooms. And so my office is in pieces, but it'll come back together sometime. It always does. It always does. Mm -hmm. I just need to like buy some shelves and, and modify my desk and put up a bulletin board that I got for free off of Facebook even though it didn't come with all of the mounting hardware that it needed. <laughs> okay. So welcome to our home improvement, self-improvement podcast. Mm-hmm. Our home improvement fan cast. <laughs> so speaking of popular television from the 90s and beyond. Uh, oh boy, nice. We are going to be talking about this play that I mentioned earlier, Mr. Burns, a post-electric play by Ann Washburn. Uh, the way that we do this show, if you haven't listened before, we one of us reads it. Usually the other person talks about it usually and then we kind of meet in the middle and you reap the benefits. <laughs> that was a weird way to it makes it sound like I read the book and then you try to tell me about the book that I read, which would be a fun way to try and do an episode at some point. Sort of yes. Oh well that's kind of what this that's kind of what this plays about, Andrew. Ooh, let's mm-hmm. get into it. Mm-hmm. So this play uh, premiered in 2012 at the Woolly Mammoth Theater in Washington, D.C., District of Columbia. Mm-hmm. you got to say the full yep. name sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it later ran at Playwrights Horizons in New York City, the Big Apple of New York State, in 2013. off-Broadway theater. Off-Broadway. Just in case you think the show's a bigger deal than it is. I mean... It like it was nominated for or won Obies like it's yeah, not... but it but it wasn't on Broadway. Okay. Just saying. Okay, just saying. Uh, and we are gonna get into the meat of like where this play came from, but first, Washburn is a contemporary American playwright. Obviously, uh, she grew up in Berkeley. Her dad was a painter, and her mom was like a nonprofit housing worker. Uh, she did theater in high school, but didn't think she would do it in college. Until an adaptation of the Oristia changed her mind. I bring that up because that's one of the plays that she cites as an inspiration for this play. Um, that and I'm the gonna stand. rely on I'm gonna rely on you almost entirely to <laughs> tell me about plays that have influenced this play. Well, I think uh, yeah, we'll come back to that. Um, she went to Reed College and then she she like headed off to the Pacific Northwest to hang out in Seattle and Portland. She was like temping and writing radio plays and then occasionally directing and things. 
That brought her to grad school at NYU, where she worked with Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America, among other people. Uh, and then she started being a prof- professional playwright, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, and I was surprised to find that she was actually the first playwright produced in a group called 13P that has a bunch of playwrights I've heard of, Sarah Rule Chief among them, which is like a playwriting collective where they all help finance each other's plays like one at a time. Um, and it's, that's a, it's a model I've seen used in other cities. And I think there's a, there's a similar kind of nascent directing model here in Philly. Um, it's an interesting way to, to get things done without like taking your play to a specific theater company, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this play is like her big thing. Like she's won a couple of awards for her work in general, um, a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Whiting Award, and the Penn Laura Pels Award, but the latter two both came after this play took off. So, Andrew, you said you had some notes on where this thing came from. So, the deal with this play, it's called Mr. Burns, a uh-huh. post-electric play, and, uh-huh. and there is on the Kindle edition that I got, and um, if you look at all the art that that I actually, I without realizing it, in San Francisco one time I was there, I walked by a place that was putting the show on, I think. I walked by a theater in Minnesota two years ago that was putting it on, similarly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I, yeah, so I, I was like, what is the Simpsons thing? Is this authorized? <laughs> like, but what it, what it is, is, um, so the, the conceit of it is that it's a bunch of people after a sort of barely sketched in apocalypse sitting around a campfire and trying to retell a Simpsons episode. And that's mm-hmm. like the genesis of it. So okay. act one, act one is people like just after this apocalypse thing has happened, getting together and trying to do this. Act two is the same people seven years later. And then act three is 70 years after that. Okay. And we'll talk about like what happens during each of these, each of this fa- these phases. But let's talk about the Simpsons for a minute. What's the Simpsons? That's where my expertise comes in. Okay. If you haven't heard, let me tell you about a little show called the Simpsons. <laughs> it was created by Matt Groening and developed by him. Uh, James L. Brooks, who you might know from like the Mary Tyler Moore show and uh, Lou Grant and a ton of movies. He's been around forever. Um, and a guy named Sam Simon who just passed away uh, last year, I think, pretty recently. But um, it began as a series of shorts on the Tracy Ullman show in 1987 and then became its own series in the 1989-1990 season. And um, it was the then new Fox Network's first top 30 show. So huh. if you think okay. of like Fox as one of the big entrenched broadcasting networks now it was like back in the late 80s early 90s it was just starting out and this was like their first big breakout hit yeah it was like a a whole big deal that they ended up running like primetime animated television probably all because of the simpsons but i don't know yeah it was like there was an era uh where primetime animation was fairly common this was back like with the flintstones and the jetsons but for a long time, it had been relegated to sort of a kid's format. And partly because they started outsourcing animation to Korea, like they would storyboard it out here, send it over there to be animated and then get it back. And for the first few seasons, you can see them like working out the kinks in that because it doesn't always look great. Oh, OK. OK. <laughs> but yeah, because they figured out a way to make it cheaper, it helps like bring the cost down for, to, to do like a primetime show. And that's the format that a lot of animated shows are are still using now Hmm. um okay so it's currently in its 28th season does that make it the longest running tv show like ever the longest running scripted tv show so it's Um, beaten gunsmoke before that it was gunsmoke but it it beat gunsmoke a few years ago and um it's been renewed for a 29th and a 30th (laughs) season that's too many (laughs) Um, and, and, you know, there, there's been, there was a movie around a, close to a decade ago. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Christ. Um, there had been a bunch of other shorts and and things, uh but it's, it's cultural relevance and popularity. And most would argue like quality is generally thought to have peaked in the late nineties somewhere. Okay. Um, usually around like season nine or 10 is where most people draw that line sure um 
And it was, you know, it's popular not just because it was popular at the time, but it's also been huge in syndication. It was a huge seller on DVD because the DVDs of the of the earlier and you know the best seasons were coming out in the early to mid two thousands when like TV shows packaged as DVDs were were really like becoming a thing. When giving someone a DVD box set for Christmas felt like a real gift and not like a death sentence. Like, <laughs> wow, this is something this is you gave me like inconvenient bad Netflix. Thank you. I could store like three books in the spot where this will take up on my shelf. Oh man. But it's still it's still this giant money making machine for Fox, which is why they still continue making it like um in 2014 a fox subsidiary fxx paid 900 million dollars for the exclusive streaming rights to the entire series and that's still the only place you can stream it okay yeah so the simpsons is still a big business like most of the time when they're trying to figure out whether they're gonna renew it again it's like can is it more pro- is the series more profitable to us dead or alive <laughs> which is probably like does the next series of episodes help us sell like more stuff with homer and bart on it or not yeah like at this point they they've been around for almost as long as we've been alive I feel like they're pretty entrenched at this point. Yeah. They're like, like if the Flintstones gummy vitamins are still around, <laughs> surely the Simpsons will be around in gummy vitamin form for many decades to come. Well, and that kind of takes us into what this play is, right? So the quote I have from Ann Washburn on why this play is what it is, is she said she's always wanted to take a TV show and quote, push it past the apocalypse and see what happened to it. Uh, she had initially considered Cheers and MASH, which I thought was interesting because MASH is the like big show that's referenced in Infinite Jest as this like right, yeah. giant cultural touchstone. Uh, for whatever reason, she doesn't really remember. She settled on The Simpsons, and she got together with some friends in this theater troupe called The Civilians and put them in a rehearsal room, like three of them, and had them riff on the... Th- simpsons episode that they remembered the best yeah and then they the civilians is apparently it's a troop that is apparently known for basing works off of like real recorded conversations that people have so this is a sort of standard process for them and the specific version of the story that i read was that that one actor in there who is a real simpsons Mm -hmm, aficionado mm -hmm. like yours truly Mm -hmm. and um so he retold this particular episode. The one that they picked is called Cape Fear with an E at the end of it, <laughs> which is a, uh, a season five episode in which Sideshow Bob escapes from prison to kill Bart and the family has to enter the witness protection program. Based um, off also... of the two films called Cape Fear. Yeah, the 1991 release of Cape Fear, which is itself a remake of a 1962 movie, which is itself based on John McDonald's 1957 novel, The Executioner. So, so if you're talking about playing cultural telephone, yeah, like which is sort of genius. In. It's yeah. kind of genius. Um, you may also know this episode as the one where Sideshow Bob steps on all the rakes. Yeah, which... I, you probably know about this, but like apparently when they made this episode of The Simpsons, uh, they had trouble getting it to runtime. Yep. Which is why there's like a giant musical number in it. And also it was originally supposed to be one rake, but mm-hmm. they made it nine. And then that's like the most iconic thing that's ever happened. Yeah. <laughs> like one of the Bob. cool... One of the cool things actually about the DVD sets of this show, and I'm not going to fan out about The Simpsons for too long, but you're going to have to allow me this one, is um, listening. They did commentary on every single episode. And for the earlier seasons where they're bringing back people who have like been gone from the show for years and years and years to like come back and talk about it is really neat. So they would do some of that stuff to get shows up to runtime. Like if you ever see mm. the couch gag where they like put on this big elaborate like dance with circus animals and everything. Is that just it's to get because you to the episode minutes? was not yet. Yeah, it was not long enough. <laughs> okay. And alternatively, if you have an episode that's that skips like the chalkboard gag and the whole like fly through Springfield, it's because it was too long and they're trying to cut it down. Huh. Okay. Um. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> the rake thing, and and this is before like Family Guy totally ruined this, but. It was an example of something early Simpsons episodes did well in a few cases where you take something funny 
and you do it so long that it becomes unfunny and then you do it so long that it's funny again. I love, I actually really like jokes like that. Mm-hmm. So I'm always here for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was also the, the thing I read about that episode, Andrew, was that it was actually made when they were making season four, mm-hmm. but they bumped it. Which that's pretty, yeah. Which made it common animation. It made it the last episode to air that was made with all of the original writers on the show, which is cool. Yeah, because because usually they'll yeah they'll do a couple holdover episodes because animation like just the turnaround time is so long that they leave themselves a little bit of a buffer at the end of season. So usually like when the when the 28th television season of the Simpsons is coming on, you're actually watching episodes that were made at the tail end of the last production run. Sure. Which, yeah. See, I'm like a nerd about this <laughs> in a big way. So that's why I was excited to do this play on the show. Um, Cause I've been looking forward to either seeing it or reading it or talking about it. And this was kind of a happy accident that this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we'll go. We'll take a quick break in a second before we dive into the full play. But it's worth just noting that, as you were saying, Andrew, the civilians, their mo is like recording conversations and developing scripts from there. So what it sounds like Washburn did was she took a lot of transcripts from their rehearsals and like turned it into the first act of the play. The first couple acts, yeah. yeah. Uh, even like she did prevent them from going and like looking up episodes while they were workshopping it mm-hmm. um, so that it was truly them trying to recount it as best they could. And I think yeah. she only cheated once. She like cheated on a sideshow Bob line that she really wanted in there. The, yeah. There, there are a couple of moments actually where people, people recall things and they almost get it right. Oh boy. And they get it so wrong that you'd only have to know, you'd only notice if you were a super fan, like to the point where one of them is cited by one of the reviews I read as something it's like it's an episode title. Oh no. And the, ep- the episode title is Bart of Darkness. And in the play they refer to it as um Heart of Bartness. <laughs> and it's a subtle enough mistake that the reviewer actually like writes that down as the actual episode title. So it's it's kind of interesting just to see the stuff that makes it and doesn't Sure. I assume was like transcribed from a real, real conversation. That's funny. (laughs) All right. So we got to take a quick break and we'll come right back and keep talking about the play. Yeah, let's do it. Andrew. Greg. Do you know anything? I think it's pretty obvious that I don't. (laughs) I mean, you know a lot about The Simpsons, clearly. Right, and that's that has impeded my ability to absorb other knowledge. Sure. There's, just, there's only so much space in there, and a lot of it is taken up with The Simpsons. Well, good news. If you can carve out any time in your day, uh, you can get a degree online at Penn State World Campus. You can do it anywhere in the world, Andrew, like if you're traveling, if you're on a different continent. If you're well, if a- I lived in Springfield. I Did they decide where that was? They decided where that was, right? Anyway, a Penn State World Campus offers more than 125 graduate and undergraduate degree and certificate programs. It's ranked number one for online bachelor's degrees by U.S. News and World Report. Uh, and it's in the same News and World Report's top 10 online grad programs for business, education, engineering, and technology. Uh, and Andrew, I know you're a busy working adult. I am. I know you want to advance your career or maybe start fresh in a new field. If my bosses are listening, I don't want to do that. But if they're not listening, yeah, definitely. For the sake of the bit, I know you <laughs> want to set your own pace to earn your degree. And, I do. Uh, if like life is getting in the way of you finishing a different degree or, or your first degree, um, you could also use Penn State World Campus for that. It's a good option for you. So, Andrew, I think that you should learn how Penn State World Campus can help you reach your educational goals by visiting worldcampus.psu.edu. You mean worldcampus.psu.edu? Yes, Penn State World Campus. A world of possibilities online. You know what else is online? What? Our merch store. Hey, you're right. It is. Hey, it's at overduepodcast.com slash store. I've been there. 
He's been there. Okay. You want mugs? We got mugs. You want tote bags? We got tote bags. You want stickers? We got stickers. You want bookmarks? Eh, we don't have bookmarks. Oh, wait. Psych. Yes, we do. We have Psych. bookmarks. <laughs> now, if there's any confusion, this is separate from our earlier t-shirt run that we did a couple weeks ago. So, like, some, if some of you are catching up after the holiday break, uh, we have brand new merch on sale through the rest of this month, January 2017, uh, Year of Our Lord and all the other lords and ladies. Mm-hmm. Um, you go to overduepodcast.com slash store and pick up your stuff. Yeah, pick up your stuff. And this, yeah, we for the t-shirts, we partnered with the people at Cotton Bureau, and that went super well. But this is Craig and I packing up boxes in the spare bedroom in my house. So like, whenever you order stuff, you'll just know that it was packed just for you with love. You'll know that us. we have read your name and address five times to make sure we're not sending it to the wrong person, that mm-hmm. we have lovingly bubble wrapped whatever you ordered and we have lovingly dropped some of your boxes to make sure that the (laughs) merchandise inside will get to their destination safely and or and we or a close friend of ours has taken it to the post office so that it gets to you Mm -hmm. that's the kind that's the kind of care that you get with overdue so hit, <laughs> hit overduepodcast.com slash store we'll be running that till january 31st and uh yeah get your merchandise today you mentioned that springfield thing during the ad break and i had to bite my tongue to bring up so there's an episode in season 11 <laughs> that was a behind the music parody Okay. And at the end of the episode, I think they I remember that one. They mentioned the state that Springfield is in. Oh, but no. they reco- the guy that the guy who they had narrating it, who's the actual behind the music guy, they had him record several different states and they played different states during like different re airings of the episode. Oh no. <laughs> just to like mess clue? With everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Did they not decide on it when the movie was coming out? I think at some point they've decided on it, just like they've come up with names for comic book guy and all that stupid stuff. But I, as far as I'm concerned, the the canon of The Simpsons ended in like nineteen ninety nine. So <laughs> <laughs> know that you should edit that out, I suppose. Should I edit it out? I thought we were back. Oh, are we back? We're back. Well, we're back. Okay. <laughs> Andrew. I didn't know we were just doing the show the whole time, huh? Our lives are the show, Craig. <laughs> we're always doing this show. Mm-hmm. So just Sometimes there are microphones around to record it and that's... sometimes not. <laughs> so let's talk about Mr. Burns, a post-electric play. I, okay. I assume we will draw on the rest of your Simpsons knowledge as necessary. Sure. We will talk about how this works as a script versus how it could maybe work as a play, I'm sure. But yeah, like, we'll talk about that. What actually happens, as best as you can tell me? All right. So let's do this. Um, a bunch of people with white people names. It's like... <laughs> Like Matt and Jenny and Colleen, I think it's they. They were named for the actors who put the show on the first time. So maybe some white people or whoever. and so like and so like I don't even the names of the people aren't even really important. Okay, sure. Like it's just the the conversation they're having is important, but you don't get any one character enough to really say that this play is populated by actual people. Sure, 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 sure. Um, so it's a bunch of people gathered around a campfire trying to recount the plot of this this Simpsons episode, Cape Fear. And um, I'll read an excerpt from their conversation later. I just want to get through the first act sure. first. Um, so they're doing this, and then they hear a noise in the woods, and some other person walks out. And they go through this little thing, and this is some of the only like exposition you get about what has happened that you get. But basically... The power grid is out. Like you're in America, um, okay, in the Northeast ish, okay. Um, and either something has happened to knock out the power grid, or the nuclear plants melted down, and then the power went out. Hmm. But basically, like every every nuclear plant in the United States has completely caught on fire. And we we talked about Fukushima Daiichi a couple of weeks ago. When yeah, we did sure. For the time being. If you like, you can't just turn off a nuclear power plant. Yeah, you have to because like the the fuel. The, yeah, like the fuel needs, rods it needs to be cooled and it needs to be expended. And if you just like let it go, it's gonna catch on fire and it's gonna be a 
a bad scene. It's going to be a bad scene. And there's like a hundred or some nuclear power plants in America. So that's yeah, probably like bad. Most of them were not built in the modern era because after like Three Mile Island and, and um, Chernobyl and stuff, like people's enthusiasm for nuclear power sort of cooled a little bit. Get but, it? Um, yeah, yeah, get it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we, we've still got a bunch of them. And in this play, they've all melted down and electricity is just gone. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's literally no electricity. The grid's gone. There is no electricity. The grid is gone and disaster has struck. And so you you actually, you, the one of the few really human feeling moments in the play, one of the, one of the ones that isn't just about this play being a play, I guess, for lack of a better description is like these people meet, this guy comes out of the, out of the forest and they, they meet in this clearing and they all take out these notebooks and they all read off a list of 10 names to each other. And it's a list of people who they knew. And they're just trying to like, every time you meet someone new, you read the list of names and you try and figure out if they know anything about where they are. Sure. I, I, that's really, hmm, I like that a lot. I read an interview with Washburn where she mentioned that device and that it was inspired by a lot of people she knew uh, after 9-11, because she was in New York after 9-11. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just that, like, there was a social contract of grieving and of memory keeping that she was kind of just amazed that everyone was on the same page about how it worked without anyone ever being very explicit about it yeah um, yeah that's it's that's and that that's yeah. really it's really well conveyed and i guess what i mean when i say it's human is it feels real in a in a depressing sort of way yeah sure like it feels like a real reaction to a real tragedy where the where the most of the rest of it just seems like people trying to distance themselves from it Sure. Okay. Or like find some like find some kind of escapism in it. You know, in a way that doesn't always feel real. Like in some ways it does feel like actors in a basement trying to retell a Simpsons episode to each other. But like, <laughs> okay. like this is one of the few world-building moments in the play and it is executed pretty well. Sure. So once they, you know, once they establish all the stuff, like somebody goes to the river and gets him a nice cold beer that was cool in the river and he's like hey thanks and they all sit around and the and the guy they'd gotten stuck on a line earlier and i can tell you the line if you want but he like knows the line and he sits down and he recounts the line and then they get back into retelling it okay but um there's so so sideshow bob has gotten out of prison and this is going to be like me recreating this play for you just with my collection of the simpsons oh like i'm dizzy with the meta-ness right now so, so Sideshow Bob, like he didn't actually break out of prison. He got paroled, I think. Okay. And Bart is really like on edge about it because he heard Sideshow Bob like on the radio. Like he called into a radio show and he said, I'm going to kill you, Bart. And Oh, I think I remember that. Sure, sure, sure. And so they're all in a theater like seeing a movie. And this is this is a parody of the movie Cape Fear, which I actually have never seen. I've never seen the movie. I've never seen the movie on. of Cape Fear either. So okay. they're sitting in a in a theater and they discover that Sideshow Bob is sitting in front of them and Marge tells Sideshow Bob to stay away from her son and he says, Oh, I'll stay away. I'll stay away forever. <laughs> <laughs> what? Okay. And then he realizes that he, he like said a bad line and he wants and he wants the he says, Say stay away from your son again and they won't do it. <laughs> <laughs> So that that is the line. And I don't know if that's if you know the line that she like looked up specifically. So they I think that might it. be it. I think that might be but, it. Um, but um, yeah, that's that's the the one that bridges that one human moment of reading the names with the rest of this like Simpsons retelling stuff. Okay, cool. So that's the first act. Is it's just it's just after this stuff has happened, and you do get a story at this point about like you get some stories about people like in grocery stores like trying to buy duct tape and stuff the kind of the kind of activity you might see like just before a hurricane where like society is still there as a construct but yeah also sure people are panicking a little bit and like, sure. trying to hoard stuff and just like buckle down and is prepare there for any it they don't know how bad it's gonna be is there any explanation in this act of like why this simpsons episode 
No. Um, okay. And they, they mention a couple others. This just like, it happens to be the episode that they are, that they are retelling, you know? Okay. So there is a sense of like, okay, well, we're around this campfire. What are we going to do? Hey, you know that Simpsons episode. Oh, I think I've seen that too. Let's, yeah, let's you, just go you through almost, it. You kind of break into it like in Medias Race. Like them, That's great. I like, love it. Trying to retell the Simpsons episode. So let me read some dialogue for you. Sure. And this is going to this is going to expose some parts where it'll probably work better as a stage show than as a script. Most and plays. It's yep. Also going to expose like why I kind of like the idea of this play more than the act of actually reading this play. Sure. Sure, sure. So this is one guy um they're retelling the scene where Bart is opening these letters that are written to him in blood that are <laughs> saying that somebody's going to kill him. Okay. And so this guy, his name is Matt, not that it matters. And he says, and so it's that, it's that. And it's all of them sitting around the kitchen table. And it's like, die, Bart, die. I'm going to kill you, Bart, da, 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 da. And then like one written in pen. And he's like, this one is written in pen. And Homer's like, oh, I wrote that one because, and then the stage direction say laughs tumultuously. When, when a Bart, oh, I wrote that one because for that time when Bart tattooed this on my butt and he like pulls down his pants and his butt is tattooed with the word wide load. And then there's laughter in the script and the whole family is like, ah, and starts laughing, laughing for like a really weirdly long time. Marge, Lisa and the baby are just like, ha 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 ha. It's very, I just thought it was funny that they would just take a break from the episode to laugh at Homer anyway. And you just, it keeps going like that. And like, even me reading it out loud to you and like making you laugh with it is probably working better than it works to just sit and read it on the page, you know? Yeah, because it's got some fun like stutters in it that are probably just verbatim from the dude who did it in that basement. Right, yeah. Um, But it also just like, yeah, that's pretty good. I don't know. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I I'm with you. If I was reading it like... If that were on my desk at work and it was like, oh, maybe we're going to do like we're going to do this play or we're going to do it in a classroom, like read it ahead of time. I might kind of skim through that stuff and not actually get the full benefit of it. Yeah, like it, you hit you know, the you hit the like, here's the this is the part of the episode that they're talking about. And here's the like where that joke lands in that part of the episode. And yeah, especially yep. for me, who's like intimately familiar with this to the point where I kind of got annoyed when they were getting it wrong. <laughs> Uh-huh. Like I, I was definitely kind of skimming over, especially the big text blocks where they were just trying to figure out the stuff that people said. Sure. Okay. So does that does the first act end with them like accomplishing anything specific? They get to the end of the episode, maybe. Um, I don't even. Yeah, they do get all the way through it because there's this whole um, there's this whole bit at the end where like Bart tries to. They describe a bit where he like there. So they are the Simpsons have entered the witness protection program. Yes. And they go down to a place called Terror Lake. <laughs> uh-huh. And they are there. And Sideshow Bob finds them anyway. And oh, so sure. he cuts the boat loose and they're floating down this river. And Sideshow Bob has tied up the entire family except for Homer, who's just asleep. And so it's just Bart and Sideshow Bob. And Bart like runs to one end of the boat to try and jump off. And there are alligators, and then he runs to the other side, and he tries to jump off. And there are electric eels, and then he runs to the other side, and he tries to jump off, and it's alligators again. And he's like, oh, yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) And there's this whole gambit where he makes Sideshow Bob sing the whole score of... HMS Pinafore, right? HMS Pinafore, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, see, this is just the play. This is just the play. (laughs) And so they get to the, yeah, they get to the end of that and then there's the act break and then you get into act two. And so in the, when you're actually putting this on, the intermission is between acts two and three, which makes sense. sense yep. Uh, when we, we get to what happens in act three. So in act two, you're seven years down the road and what you see is the same group of people putting on the same episode and some details have changed and some have been lost and corrupted a little bit. But they basically become this like troop of actors who are putting on a Simpsons episode complete with like weird mushed together commercials and like (laughs) popular songs of the day. Sure. Are they putting it on for anyone? Are you watching a rehearsal? Are you You're watching a rehearsal? Okay, cool, cool, cool. 
And through their conversation, like between them recreating this stuff, you're also picking up that there are a lot of other competing troops and they all have the, they all like are known for putting on specific episodes to the point where if you find somebody who knows a really good line from an episode that you want to put on, you will like pay them money for them to tell you that line. But it's all Simpsons. It's all Simpsons. Okay. I would thrive. (laughs) In this environment, by the way, like in most post-apocalyptic, in most post-apocalyptic scenarios where I write about phones and podcasts, like I'm the first against the wall. I'm, but in one where the Simpsons is currency, like I would rule the world. I feel like I would just spend my time in the apocalypse being very very careful and hoping that my glasses don't break because once my glasses break like you just need to like protect me and ask me like i can just sit there and ponder things for you but i can't do anything useful yeah i mean there's a simpsons episode where they parody lore of the flies and that it's kind of like that yeah so it's a season nine episode it's called das bus oh my good gracious Uh, (laughs) i'm trapped in mr burns a post-electric play a, po- a post-electric podcast. How are you listening to this? Um, okay, so now they're they're like the Shakespearean theater troops going around doing doing Simpsons, episodes. doing Simpsons, and, episodes. and you kind of, and you get like you still don't have electricity. Okay, how did you I say that word? Emphasize that word really wrong. Electricity. <laughs> and they they kind of psych you out at the beginning of the act because it's one of the characters from the first act sitting in front of a TV and like the light of the TV is flickering on his Hmm. face Hmm. and somebody comes home and they go through this thing where it's like, Oh honey, I'm home, whatever, whatever. And then somebody flubs a line and it becomes clear that they're like rehearsing a commercial. And what he's actually looking at is like a box with candles in it. Oh, (laughs) to recreate the, the lighting effect. So like why do you get an explanation for why commercials are like, what are the commercials like? It's I read this about a week ago, so like specific details have, are kind of fading in okay. my mind. But, but like what are they like to encounter? It's about like it's about recreating the feeling of watching a TV show when there is sure. still electricity. Like that's sure. that's the kind of escapism there is, is like seven years on, like let's have this giant conversation about how many diet cokes there could possibly be left in the world. <laughs> okay. And then let's also, for people in this barely functioning society, like provide them some release by reminding them what it was like to just sit and watch a TV show. Yeah, because at this point, there are still people around who were alive because it's only seven years hence, right? Yeah, and then they do talk about like, oh, there are communities that were really far from a power plant and suddenly everybody's skin started falling off. Like you get some idea of how of how things have progressed, but it's also still recognizable. Like they're still putting on this episode of the Simpsons. It's still about sideshow Bob doing all this stuff. They're still talking about other episodes of the Simpsons, like specific episodes, even when they get the name slightly wrong. Sure. Sure. Other troops are putting on. So it's still, it's still pretty close. No, but they are at this point. They are like performing it, like in the first act. Yeah, they're like not, campfire tales. The first act is entertaining themselves. The second act, it's become entertaining other people. Okay, and the, and the commercials are neat because it's it sounds like its structure becomes just as important to to mimic as the like yo this oh, was yeah. a story you heard. Yeah, once. it's it's not even the commercials aren't even so much about a specific product. So like in. In the same way that the songs that they sing, it's not about singing a specific song. It's just about like mushing up the component parts of all this stuff okay. to recreate the feeling of what it was like. And so, that's that's like how nostalgia works, right? Is it'll like think about the experience of seeing any given Star Wars movie in the theater now. Like they sure, will sure. take this five second little throwaway gag and it's designed to remind you of the fullness of not just like what that gag is a reference to, but also maybe the point in your life where you saw it for the first time and the feelings that you have about the movie that it's from. And, you know, and, and of all stuff. of the like feelings that you have built up 
and like head canon that you've created around that moment <laughs> right and like yeah. the times that you did or did not pretend to be that character on the playground like that's all wrapped up in a 10 second like gesture towards yep. someone okay mm-hmm. okay so do you is anything like major at the end of act two like I imagine it's mostly just like doing the episode, but in the new like heightened form. It's mostly that. Okay. Yeah. Now the act does end with people coming into their theater and like shooting guns and trying to take their stuff. Oh, which so is like where, real which is, stuff. Wh- yeah, which is where reality crashes back in on this little Simpsons bubble that they've made. Okay, cool. So you've got like raiders, like post-apocalyptic raiders. Neat. Sort of, yeah. And then Act 3. Oh, uh uh-oh. Okay. Act 3 takes place 70 years after the fact. Okay. So, I don't know, given the reduced life expectancy that would probably result from such a big apocalypse, you've Mm -hmm. probably gone through, you know, two, three, maybe even four generations of people. So probably the apocalypse is not a living memory anymore, even though it is still a recent memory. Yeah, like at best, there's... Think about how like World War II is for us now. Like yes. there's, We can still clearly draw lines between it and stuff that's happening now. It still echoes through society in a lot of ways, but maybe Ver- we're forgetting yeah. some of the lessons that we learned. Very like, few... P- like yeah. Nazis equals bad. Yeah. Maybe we've forgotten uh, some of that. Very... <laughs> this is me... At the end of Act Two of our podcast, coming into our podcast theater with guns to remind you of the real world. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> so, what is Act Three about then? Act Three is, and and some of this I have just read. Like this is this is again where the script is inadequate, but the costuming is like crude simpsons costumes so people dressed up as simpsons characters but it doesn't look great okay i've seen some of those production photos yeah it's sort of it's like a sung through it's become this sung through drama like almost operatic sure about the simpson family and it's still like it's still about bart and he's still ultimately like left alone by the family to face his antagonist but the comedy is pretty much gone and it's not sideshow bob anymore it's mr burns now oh who is not i don't even think he's in the episode at all i don't know that he is yeah there's another early season five episode about burns and his teddy bear that factors probably. whoa the citizen kane episode yeah the Citizen kane episode whoa okay it's like that and the barbershop quartet episode were all like it was all like back to back to back is that do they do a do they do a beatles one yeah they do a rooftop concert oh we're just doing the play (laughs) (laughs) it's just you can forget how many classic episodes of the simpsons just aired week to week like it was no big deal oh man uh But yeah, Mr. Burns is not does not factor into this episode in any significant way if he's in it at all. Okay. Okay. And yet in this in this play where this long game of telephone combined with the kind of stuff this society needs, it's like combined together into this thing where all of a sudden Mr. Burns is the villain. And I think that based on the you know, the interviews and reviews I've read plus what I was, you know, what I was thinking as I read the play is like Obviously, in this world where nuclear power broke everything, sure, you would, you would find a way to bend things to make the cartoonishly evil owner of a nuclear power plant the ultimate antagonist to your story. Well, and based on what you were saying about Act 2, it would make sense that, like, over 70 years, uh, people would start, like, the stories would start to break down. And one group would say, "No, no, no! I, in my in the in the version that I heard, it was definitely Mr. Burns." And then, like, mm. they assert themselves, and then that becomes the version that other people know. And then it sounds like it's taken on some sort of like 
mythical quality at this point. A little bit, yeah, because so when we're talking about Simpsons episodes, like I can mention, oh, the the teddy bear episode, the Citizen Kane episode, whatever, and you have seen that at some point. Like no matter, yes. it doesn't matter how long ago it was or or what. Like you remember that episode of The Simpsons, and so you've gotten to the point in the society where you can bring this stuff up, and there's no like established memory of what they mean. This stuff sure. happening, like this play, is not firing off those nostalgia neurons. Nope. about this this episode of the simpsons like maybe you were getting some people who saw this recreation of a simpsons episode put on as a kid and they remember like what was important to them and then they grow up and they pass it on and it gets passed on and combined with other stuff until it's become this, this weird weird operatic societal commentary okay that actually like it it has very little in common with the episode anymore except for the the very 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 broadest structure and then also once once or twice you get the snippet that's thrown in that's like some story about one of the original characters friends that they like wrote down in a journal or were telling the people as they retold this episode like it's it's a weird real world thing that's broken into the Simpsons retelling and become integrated. Oh, okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that makes. Sense. I mean, it's like yeah. So I brought up the Oristia in the first half of the show, and apparently, uh, Washburn cited the Oristia and the Stand, Stephen King's The Stand. If I didn't say that before, um, and most reviewers make a joke about Homer Simpson versus you know the other Homer. Oh, cool. Who's Great. known who's you know, <laughs> whose works are known for like being passed down in an oral tradition. Sure. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. good that's a every, good every every reviewer you can just sense how proud of themselves they oh. are when they make that stupid joke. Okay. Um she said in an interview with Playwrights Horizons um about the Oristia specifically that like that's a late Greek tragedy by Euripides. Um and it seems to it gets a little bit more playful with structure and tone, and it seems to point towards a style of tragedy that we don't have other extant examples of. Mm-hmm. Um, so she seems interested in this, like, okay, we had this series of beliefs and myths and characters, and then like we people like two thousand years hence only have this like selected work and we don't know where it went and we don't know who else was doing what but now we can like now we riff on these plays by Euripides which she herself has done she's written adaptation of the Oristia and whatnot Mm -hmm. um but that's based on like a limited set of information um and there was something I don't know if it was in the music history class that you and I took together Andrew but like somewhere along the line it got him impressioned on my brain imprinted on my brain no impression is correct you know whatever (laughs) uh that like we have box music or we have whoever's music because like those are the yes they are very good but that's also the people that someone took the time to copy down yeah like we could have ended up with other composers if nobody liked Bach, like the person, and they just burned his stuff, or mm. if the right students weren't interested in doing their copying work as part of learning how to do music. So there's this game of telephone that you've been talking about that is like so circumstantial. <laughs> yeah, like the episodes they talk about in this play are all like big episodes, but so you'll get. You'll get the episode where Lisa's a vegetarian. Oh, that's a good one. You aren't going to get the episode where Marge like buy, like finds a Chanel dress in the discount bin and like spends a bunch of time like trying to spe- like spending time with socialites and like trying to read like cut and stitch the dress so it looks like different stuff so she'll continue to fit in like a really great episode with a lot of really great moments in it but it's a little less hard to get that instant recall on it and Marge episodes tend to be like the Simpsons blends like at its best it blends a sort of sentimentality and Mm -hmm. humor and Marge episodes tend to be a little bit more on the 
sentimental side just because she's so often the straight man to like a to yeah, Bart or Homer. Yeah. She doesn't um, she doesn't play wacky well. Marge yeah. does not. Or like the like the episode where Homer meets his mom for the first time. Like heartbreaking and hilarious, but probably wouldn't play super great. No. Like if you're just trying to recreate it from stuff that you were remembering, you know? Sure, sure. So do we find out any more about the world as this play draws to a close? Like why has it gotten so archetypical and heightened? It's you don't there there is no dialogue between people like giving you more information about the world like you get in the first two acts. You were just you are yourself seeing this play being put on. Oh, like this, okay. This future play. Sure. Okay. And you're seeing people dressed up as characters, but you don't like it's not a rehearsal anymore. It's actually the the production of it. Weird. Um and it ends and the whole play ends with the Mr. Burns character walking on a treadmill, which lights up a bunch of electric lights, which is the first and only time you get actual electricity in the entire play. Huh. But like, and then he stops walking and all the lights go out. Okay. So that's like, maybe that's all you get is people. And, and the stage directions are very specific about all the electricity being it's, it's, got to have this found quality almost like it sure. can't be recently manufactured stuff necessarily. Sure, 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 sure. But somebody has figured out some kind of electricity in this world. So maybe like you can infer from that, you know, maybe things are getting back to some semblance of of normality, but obviously the stuff that only happened a few decades ago and completely wrecked society as we knew it, like it's still got a stranglehold on the popular imagination. Yeah, know? yeah. That's neat. Just like I can go to the theater now and see eight trailers for World War II movies. Well, that's true. There's, things were so cut and dry back then, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just have a... I, I want to kind of unpack your reaction to this thing with a with a quote from an interview with Ann Washburn in The Gothamist in 2013. And they asked her, have you had any feedback from Simpsons fans? Have any obsessive Simpsons nerds come to see it? This was after she answered a bunch bunch of questions saying like the staff of The Simpsons was very supportive. Um, They actually referenced it in a later episode. They did, they did. Yeah, which is nice. Um, She says, on two occasions, someone has come to the theater dressed totally in Simpsons regalia with (laughs) t-shirts and buttons. (laughs) And each time that person left at the intermission, so it may not actually be for very deep Simpsons fans. Well, because they probably come expecting it to be more about the Simpsons and less about less about an apocalypse, less about which is the what it's transmission about. Yeah. of information and the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, like in talking about this, when you talk about it broadly, it's cool. Like there, there are a sure. lot of cool ideas to talk about. As a reading experience, like it's quick, but I wouldn't say that it's particularly fulfilling or like fun. Okay, but it's all it's only in the like critical examining of it. And, you know, of course, you would have to do that as part of putting it on and also as part of seeing it. It's only in doing that that you really get to its value and like what makes it notable. Yeah, I'm trying to think like what. So, like, the th- the thing that the script gets to do, which I don't think it would do as what, you know, this play would not work as a book, right? I don't think that that would, you, I don't think that this story would You couldn't would do work. a novelization, yeah. I don't think that that would play. Um, but I feel like it, some of the in medias rest stuff works better on stage than it would in the novel. But I also feel like the third act... Which I think, as I as I recall, was their music was Michael Friedman. I just want to give him credit because there was like music he wrote for the play. Um, I feel like that could have this weird, like, just let it wash over you vibe. Yeah, where it and works. the process, like the the act of reading it, is frustrating because you're like, what is happening? <laughs> what is going on? But that's probably part of the viewing experience. Yeah, it's just think, as a yeah. reader, you don't have any of the spectacle to like back it up. I would be, and and you don't have like the ramshackle costumes, and yeah. And so the the Simpsons connections are a little tenuous, more tenuous, yeah, because you you don't have the 
visuals to back everything up. Oh my I want to read a really pissy review that, <laughs> that David Finkel wrote for HuffPo. And this will be my oh, closing. Oh, yeah, the statement. HuffPo. Okay, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so he opens, the rev- he opens the review, and I always find this helpful, by saying that he has not seen The Simpsons and he doesn't really care to. He did watch one episode to kind of try and root himself in this and he picked a really bad episode to start with which was the first of the two who shot mr burns episodes why would you i don't know why would you finkel um so he seems like predisposed to dislike it and so i'm just gonna read you some quotes great hit me some choice some juicy quotes But really, no less cute is Washburn's entire undertaking, which has the look of something attempting to be downright devastating on the subject of where the United States and the world is heading. That's if what we were to take with us as our primary comfort in calamitous conditions turned out to be The Simpsons, good as it is and truly amusing, and as popular television ilk and nothing the least bit higher brow. Washburn is so wedded to her epercue, A-P-E-R-C-U, do you know how to pronounce that? Is Mm, that like a French? uh, Who knows? Whatever, some pretentious pretentious theater reviewer word. Don't add us, please. (laughs) That whereas the message she's sending could be contained as a 15-minute skit, if not quite a 140-character tweet, she stretches and stretches and stretches it through those three parts. And this is how it concludes. To my way of thinking, Mr. Burns, a post-electric play, is less close to Matt Groening than it is to much groaning. I won't even append pardon the pun. I don't care if you pardon it or not. I'm that put out. Uh, <laughs> that makes me want to champion this place so much. That it review just, makes yes. me so mad. Yeah. It, and this it reminds me of another Simpsons bit where they're putting on a streetcar named Desire. The episode is called A Streetcar Named Marge. It's season four. And the megalomaniac director voiced by john lovitz is talking about his bona fides and he holds up a review of a previous play and the headline is play enjoyed by all (laughs) (laughs) okay okay and that's that that's that that's it cool i like the simpsons i know you like the simpsons i'm glad that (laughs) You had at least somewhat of a good time reading this play and that we had a good time making this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, If you out there, the listeners, have a favorite Simpsons episode that we didn't obliquely reference that you would like. Please tell me about it. Please send us a message on social media. Uh, You can do it at Facebook Tom. Facebook Tom? (laughs) Please Facebook our friend Tom and he will tell you where to go next. Facebook.com slash overdue pod or Twitter.com slash overdue pod. In the last week or so, we've gotten messages from Margaret, Becky, the Black Hotties, Elizabeth, Lee, yours truly, Carrie, Whitney, Marie, Taylor, Grace, Katie, Mary Kate, Terry, Steve, Claire says what, Melissa, R.A. Page, Rachel, Melissa, Ella, Radiant Fracture, Graham, Charlotte, Mrs. Trefithic, Carrie A, Podteen, Dave, Zucatel, Rebecca, <laughs> Jesse, Sarah, Michael, Sophie, uh, Gapanoy, Gapanoy, I believe, uh, Jess, Chris, uh, Helena, Tessa, Nicole, Dion, and Jane. Thanks, y'all. Uh, you can also send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. We've gotten a couple of those recently, and we're trying to stay on top of them. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to OverduePodcast.com, which is where we have links to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, RSS. Those are all ways you can use to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us. We've gotten a couple of those in the last week. They make us feel better, and they also help the show rise in those capricious iTunes algorithms. Um, Yeah, they help people find the show. We have only advertised very rarely so word of mouth is the way that we grow and we just we need we need it we need it so bad we need your word of mouth tell your friends in itunes and in real life to listen to our podcast your itunes friends and your real life friends yes um we've also got links to headgum our podcast network spreaker our podcast host 
And like we talked about earlier, we have a link to our store. You can also find that at overduepodcast.com slash store. We are selling logo mugs and totes and try to be happy mugs and totes along with bookmarks and stickers until the end of January. We are sending stuff out once a week and people seem pretty happy with the stuff that we are getting so far. Um, I really like seeing tweets and Facebook pictures of people with their merch. So (laughs) keep those coming. Um, Craig, is there anything else? What are you reading next week? I think I'm going to check overduepodcast.com, which has the list. I think you and I are reading the Constitution of the United States. Because somebody should. Because somebody should. <laughs> also, in, in whatever edition that we And also, we like, the Bill of Rights and all the... And the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Um, are we doing the Declaration, too? Well, it was in the edition that I had, and it took me, like, five minutes. So, like, why Sorry. the heck? It's, it's worth having in the back of your brain... Uh, the edition that we have linked from our website, overduepodcast.com, through Amazon, which has plenty of links to the books that we read, um, has also a couple like essays and some like writing about the origins of the Constitution that I'm actually really enjoying. So I don't know how much of that I'll be able to work into the show. I but... think we'll mostly like we'll mostly focus on the text and then let that other scholarship inform us like i don't want it to be a two-hour episode though i'm kind of like okay if it is that way because i also want to talk about like the circumstances that cause particular amendments to come into being i know modern interpretations like there's so much stuff to do Do you want to start the episode right now let's talk about why the senate's two people from every state let's go i just want to close the episode by saying that i went to a place in dc called we the pizza And just stick, let that stick with you for, for a week. Don't have a cow, man. Don't have a cow, man. I caramba. And until next week, try to be happy. Eat my shorts. <laughs>